Hi, I'm Peter Rao, and welcome back to Counterbalance. Mike Duran is out this week, but we are joined by a wonderful guest, Rebecca Heinrichs. Uh, She and I talked about nuclear weapons, deterrence, her work at Hudson, her work on the Strategic Posture Commission. The one thing we didn't talk about is the movie Oppenheimer. I know you're all disappointed by that, but so was Rebecca. Her date night was ruined by a screaming child, and that was the end of her chance to see Oppenheimer. Maybe next time. Thanks for being back and listening to Counterbalance. All right, Rebecca Heinrichs, welcome to Counterbalance. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Rebecca, uh, you are a wonderful colleague of mine here at Hudson Institute. Um, In addition to that, you wear many other hats. You are on the Strategic Posture Commission, which was created in the National Defense Authorization Act, FY22. Uh, You are also an adjunct professor at the Institute of World Politics, where you teach nuclear deterrence theory, a contributing editor of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You're finishing up your PhD, I believe, at Missouri State University. But I think most listeners will recognize your name and your voice from your appearances on Fox News, where you have probably the widest reach, arguably, of these many hats that you wear. So let's start with um, with sort of a biographical question, which is how does a how does a small town girl from Ohio end up in the big world of national security on Fox News? Uh, well, it's a good, I guess, in co- complicated answer. I mean, I, I, I'm from a small town in Ohio, rural Ohio, um, one of three daughters. And we grew up, I grew up in a home where current events was always discussed. The news was always on at night and mom and dad welcome debate, dissent, discussion. And so that's kind of really where it started. And then I just developed over time an interest in policy in politics. And then, um, fast forward, I was a freshman in college when 9-11 happened. And so I'm sort of that generation of 9-11 kids who it was very, very formative for me in in thinking about how am I going to use my time, talents, and opportunities um, over the course of my professional life to contribute something good to my country. And and so then my interest really kind of focused on more specifically on national security and defense. And then I kind of just took it from there. So I had some internships uh, out in Claremont, California, and then out um, in Washington, D.C., and just kept at it. Extended my education at the um, uh, Naval War College out here. Worked on Capitol Hill and, and just kept adding things to that. So from the middle of the country, internships from coast to coast. If you were a freshman in college uh, when 9-11 took place, so was I, were basically the same age. By like two weeks. By two weeks, that's right. And uh, maybe to continue the biographical theme then, when we were still in diapers, the founder of Hudson Institute, Herman Kahn, passed away. I think it was in July of 1983, if I have that right. And uh, Hudson really is a temple in a way to Herman Kahn. Now, you are one of Hudson's uh, principal nuclear weapons theorists, deterrence analysts. I encountered Herman Kahn obviously just intellectually for the first time in grad school, sort of a counterpoint to Tom Schelling. Mm -hmm. What should our listeners think of or know about Herman Kahn's contribution to the world of nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons deterrence thinking? So that great question. Love to talk about this. So before we get there, some listeners might want to know, well, how do I get from 9-11 to really focusing on nuclear deterrence? And, And that was, you know, as... Again, my interest was in national security and defense, but I was also studying political philosophy. So I was in this great books program, the Ashbrook Scholar Program. So so my interest continues to be uh, political philosophy, can't really get away from it. So 
I, as I started pursuing kind of, you know, I really wasn't interested in, in Islamist militantism per se. It was more, what are the threats facing the United States and what, what are the greatest, what could be the potential for the greatest threats um, facing the United States? And That's and th very different than everyone else because all of my classmates in graduate school basically wanted to learn Arabic and go study counterinsurgency so, and go yeah. live in the Middle East. Yeah, so. because you think that that's the here and now. And I did take Arabic. I went to Ohio State, took Arabic because I thought, well, maybe, maybe this is the language. I had to take a foreign language. I didn't want to take French or Spanish. And so I was like, maybe I'll do that. And then um, they called me Miss Ambassador in my class, you know, but I didn't really stick. I, I realized that just like during the Cold War and then till today, the greatest threats facing the country are from those those major powers uh, that that world war could happen again, again, getting that political philosophy point that we didn't reach the end of history, that human beings are such as they are, um, that you can't change human nature and that conflict was still going to persist and that the United States still needed to really work at deterrence and then preparing to win if deterrence failed. And so I kind of went down this path and and then realize that that the the biggest source of American power, what what really gives us the U.S. world order that we've had since World War II and and then enjoyed through the Cold War and still today, is our nuclear weapons. And, and that's just it was that intellectual path that kind of really got me there, and that's kind of where I stayed ever since. And so Herman Kahn, um, Herman Kahn really is the the guy who really pressed into this true political realism, which is that, listen, you know, deterrence, you know, Schelling, Schelling believed that you needed enough nuclear weapons to terrify the adversary such that you each had a second, you know, retaliatory strike capability. And then, and that's essentially all you needed. That, that deterrence was really pretty simple. It's a simple paradigm. And Khan came along and was like, well, I don't know, you know, if deterrence fails, we, we better be able to, one, limit the effects of of the attack, um, and we ought to, we ought to be able to prosecute a war so that we can prevail in the end. And so you need a lot more nuclear weapons. That nuclear deterrence was actually a very complicated, complex um, art. It wasn't so simple, and so you really have to think about the unthinkable. And you have to not that we want. We certainly don't want nuclear war, but you have to you have to be prepared to fight it if deterrence does does break down. And and so that was Khan's contribution, and that really resonated with me. And it and it seemed you know right and. Um, and so I have, I have certainly um, leaned more in that way in my analysis and the kinds of recommendations I give as a matter of policy. I was also, you mentioned that, you know, we were kind of born around the time that Khan passed away. I was also born when the, the same year that Ronald Reagan gave his SDI speech, the Strategic Defense Initiative speech, and was born on Ronald Reagan's birthday, February 6th. So. Or Ronald Reagan was born on your birthday, Rebecca. That's, That's right. how you have to put that. <laughs> That's great that you're um, that you're working on that issue set because I've discovered working on Europe that uh, there almost is to take me back and date me a little bit also on some domestic political debates. There used to be on on as a sidebar on some entitlement reforms the donut hole one talked about. So there was a top end and a bottom end, but a gap in the middle. And on Europe policy, and I think this also applies to to nuclear weapons writ large, there almost is a donut as well in that there's a lot of older generation cold warriors who specialized in nuclear weapons or in Europe as an area of geopolitical competition. And then there's a, there's a big gap in the middle as in the 90s, people just moved into other directions. Um, and then uh, now there's a return to Europe and uh, presumably also return uh, to nuclear weapons. Perhaps one um, exception to that on the nuclear weapons front is I remember in 2001, the Khan-Shelling debates 
were resurrected when President George W. Bush moved out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty in order to focus more on missile defenses at the time, regional defenses, Iran, North Korea, et cetera, as the administration put it. As you are engaged in this debate with scholars, this kind of intellectual community, et cetera, do you find that there is more knowledge returning? And I suppose that takes me to your professorial duties at the Institute of World Politics. Is there an interest in this sort of classwork now in nuclear deterrence? Do you think this issue is back or is there still kind of, are we still playing catch up? Yes and no. So one, I mean, I, I have found that the, the students that I've had, so I'm, I do teach at the Institute of World Politics. I'm taking a break while I while I get my own doctorate, uh, defense and strategic studies at Missouri State. But even even as I take, you know, finish up my courses at Missouri State, I'm also assistant teaching um, there as well. And there's a lot of intellectual curiosity, a lot of vibrancy. Um, I think sort of in the professional world still, um, to your point, those those professional analysts who work in the think tank community, I would say most uh, most people are still shelling people. And then there's just a few of us um, who who lean more towards uh, the Khan perspective, of course, it wasn't just Khan. It was Colin Gray, um, who also um, added what I think is really, really important contribution, which is that it's really an anthropological dispute. You know, d- how much does the nature of the regime and these actors matter in terms of how you think about deterrence, which, of course, I think it matters a great deal, where Schelling could say, yes, it matters, but really there's this idea of of still strategic balance that really kind of applies to all actors, where if you have a certain, it kind of goes down to the number of n- nuclear weapons and delivery systems and capabilities. And as long as you have certain, you know, criteria, you can kind of, it's more mathematical, where I lean more towards the Colin Gray not lean more towards, I totally agree with Colin Gray that there is strategic culture that you have to understand and grapple with with these regimes and cultures as well. And that uh, should affect how the United States thinks about how we're going to successfully shape their calculations and, and deter them from aggression against U.S. interests. So the number of people who who kind of fall into that camp, I think, is still relatively small. Um, however, the good news is Anytime these more, I mean, it's progressives get into office, President Obama sort of famously, you know, he won a peace prize for his desire to rid the world of nuclear weapons. Um, but but once he gets into office and he you, you get briefed up, you look at the threats and you have the the seriousness and the gravity of the responsibility of protecting the American people. And really, there's been a lot of continuity in our employment strategy, in our in our doctrine, in our strategies that tends to always lean towards continuity and and more towards the con perspective, which is, you know, it's still U.S. policy. We are going to deter um, our adversary. We've got certain criteria for how we think we're going to deter, but we're going to prepare to prevail if deterrence fails and limit damage and have a more flexible response. And so that has really uh, developed since the Cold War, I think, in the right direction. Yeah, I think President Obama's comment to uh, Mitt Romney when, when Senator Romney, then Governor Romney was the Republican nominee for president that the 80s wants its foreign policy back is really out the window. I mean, I think there's a recognition that a lot of the challenges we faced in the 80s, just more severe and intense probably than they were then, are back. And uh, this is the world we live in now. If I could just stay with you uh, one more minute on a, on a personal note, you're also the contributing editor of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I know you are a believing Christian. What is Providence? What does it mean to have a journal of Christianity and foreign policy to bring those two concepts together? And how did your own, or how does your own Christianity inform your own thinking on foreign policy? So my uh, my doctoral thesis is actually 
on just to kind of get right to the thesis of it is I'm defending U.S. deterrence policy based on just war doctrine. You know, the United States, again, get back to this. It's really, I think, directly related to the last comments I made, which is that every country has a strategic culture. We are the way we are as Americans. And so we're dynamic and we're messy and we have all kinds of intellectual debates about the direction we want to go as a country. But the way the United States has developed our uh, um, the way we, we we think about ourselves and the way we we think about leadership in the world is that we do follow a set of, of principles and ideas and and so from my perspective, you know, I'm a, I'm a realist, but I don't believe that realism requires that we sort of get rid of all of these moral considerations. It's impossible. We are moral beings. And and so the United States has thought about itself and how to engage in the world based on a, based on principles of what it means to, you know, what are the principles that Americans believe in and, and how do we think we should apply those in our foreign policy? And so Providence um, is a magazine that we, you know, we used to have more, more unabashedly moral conversations as Americans in our writings, again, during the Cold War, where we talked about, you know, nuclear weapons and what does it mean to have them and how are we going to use them and, and and what are the effects of them and what are we doing? And the Catholic bishops had came out with a, a very serious treatment of nuclear weapons and deterrence in 1983. Again, the year we were born. Again, yes. And this is really where there's a lot of, I was joking with somebody that I spend a lot of time in the evenings going back and looking through congressional testimony and transcripts during the Cold War. And it's like amazing. I mean, you might as well be relative to the kinds of conversations and the demagoguery that you often see today in politics. It's like we're, it's like I'm like relitigating the American founding and reading Mm -hmm. the Federalist Papers um, relative to what we see today. So it's really quite amazing. And so what Providence does is it just kind of gets back to making, you know, serious arguments based on Christian principles and ideas and applies them to current events to try to get people thinking about these things again. Um, not because we believe that, you know, everybody is going to think this way, but it really has been a part of the American heritage to think about, for instance, the laws of war. These are Christian ideas that we apply in the laws of war. Um, we still subscribe to them. We still, the, our military still trains to them. We still think about discrimination, proportionality. Those are just war principles. So I think it's important to to continue to keep those those conversations going and alive in a pretty serious way. What are the some of the major debates now in the nuclear deterrence community between if we can break it down so simply left and right? In the past there are debates also connected to the to, to the ethics and morality dimension that you were just discussing on counter force versus counter value targeting. Is this back in the news, so oh, to yeah. speak? And and if so, how? So I, so I, you know, Russia starts brandishing nuclear weapons again, and you know, uh, obviously as they're invading Ukraine, they're they're. I mean, nuclear weapons have really played a, a major, major role in how the United States has even in, thought about engaging, um, in terms of contributing certain kinds of categories of weapons, providing certain ISR to the Ukrainians, because of Russia's nuclear coercion. And then President Biden's President Biden is for sure more on that. He's a, he's a progressive when he thinks about these kinds of things. This is something that and he has been his entire political life. And when it comes down to it, is he going to make decisions that are more sort of in line with realism, moral realism? I, I certainly hope so and believe that I think he would be persuaded to do that. In other words, if deterrence does break down, would, would President Biden ever employ a nuclear weapon? I cer- certainly hope so. That's certainly on the on the table as a matter of policy. But he really is, um, if you listen to his rhetoric and, and you can pick up, I can pick up on some of his logic trains as he talks about nuclear weapons, he seems to be more of the nuclear pacifist type, which is, and what I mean by this is kind of a complicated issue, but there is this idea among progressives that if a nuclear weapon is ever employed, 
that it will necessarily result in the highest levels of escalation, Armageddon. And so, you know, so whenever you hear President Biden talking about Russia's threatening of nuclear weapons, he's mostly turning to the American people and scaring us, saying, you know, look, we don't want World War III. We don't want World War III. From my perspective, he should be turning around talking to the Russians and saying, you better not, because we have a response for that. We will make you regret that. That's a very different way of thinking about the purpose of nuclear weapons, the the rightness and, in fact, righteousness of American nuclear weapons that um, they are to defend the innocent. We are we are right, and so we should not be um, afraid to successfully seek to persuade the adversary that if he if he would ever to think about crossing the nuclear threshold, we would we would act in a way that would make him regret that. And we've got plenty of realistic options to do that in a way that would make sense. And so I think that's where there's there's a breakdown there. Uh, there's sort of a, you know, he kind of progressives tend to think that nuclear weapons can be used for deterrence, but not for employment, to which I say, but then you undermine the deterrent effect if you're, if you're going to take off um, employment as a possibility. And then from my perspective, you know, missile defense is a huge part, especially from a just war doctrine perspective, which is that if you're thinking about how are we going to optimally protect the innocent, of course you should have some kind of missile defense. Now, the shelling people would say, yes, but it looks like you're preparing for war, you're taking away that second strike potential, and so you are provoking the adversary from thing, And so you kind of go back and forth. But from my perspective, it's like, you know, no, you actually have to convince the adversary that you would be willing to use these weapons. And so you prepare to do that. 10 or at least 20 years ago, there was an additional layer to that debate, which is that a lot of opponents of missile defense said that it was technologically not feasible or prohibitively expensive. What's your rejoinder to that? Well, um, thanks to Elon Musk, we we can actually see in, in really clear ways what 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 we can actually do. It's kind of amazing. And and so um, Starlink has really demonstrated that one of the big objections, to, to your point, a lot of people said that this is going to be too technologically difficult to have a space-based missile defense because um, you really need to go to space. If you're, if you're, if you're going to actually try to um, have a realistic capability to defend the United States against large numbers of, of very sophisticated weapons. So not that North Korea could have, but like a Russia or China could have. You're really going to have to have those located in space. And it has to do with you've got to be able to see them. You've got to be able to, they're gonna be, there's going to be a lot of them. You're going to have to have technology that has the highest vantage point in its, in its outer space. You have to deal with the curvature of the earth, all kinds of things. Um, and that's the thing where people are like, well, that's hard. Now, during the Cold War, you had this concept of brilliant pebbles, but it was very expensive, um, very hard to do. And so, and then we had the ABM treaty that got rid of brilliant pebbles anyway. Well, fast forward 40 years later, we actually have launch costs are down. So you can get satellites up pretty quick for a much lower cost. And really, especially um, Elon Musk has demonstrated you can do that. I mean, if you just look at, you can look online and see where Starlink is currently today at any point. A lot of that same technology can be adapted for a space-based defensive capability. But I had one one senior official told me privately of this administration even that, you know, the United States, we still have not mentally gotten to the point where we're willing to actually build missile defenses in a serious way, that missile defense was, quote, a side hobby for the country. And as soon as we move away from that, really, we're going to be able to really hit the ground running with science and technology, and I think in a really cost-effective way. Could you just walk our listeners through, not necessarily the intricate physics, but what actually is a missile defense architecture? 
So you mentioned that there are satellites up in space. You referenced Brilliant Pebbles. Can you just walk us through that a little bit? Yeah. So what we currently have today, so you mentioned George Bush. I think one of his greatest contributions as a president was that he got the United States out of the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which really um, allowed the United States as a matter of legality to build a much more robust missile defense system. Now, when he did that, he did it for the North Korea threat. And, and the decision there was, again, sort of Connish here and Colin Gray, we, we didn't want to, we weren't comfortable as a country with this idea of mutually assured destruction with North Korea. You got a crazy, cra- you know, not crazy in the sense that he's totally irrational, but we don't always totally understand how this, how Kim Jong-un is going to behave and act. And, and it was more technically feasible with what we currently had to build just a limited homeland missile defense against the North Korean threat. So that was a ground-based system. You know, these are ground-based interceptors. So you think about a missile, only its only job is to intercept another missile. It has a kill vehicle that separates in the exo-atmosphere and it'll, it'll really hone in and hit the So it's a bullet hitting a bullet. It is. It it really is. And we've demonstrated that we can do it um, through testing and, but it's still very limited in that it's never designed. Of course, if the Chinese or the Russians were to shoot something at the United States, we would try to shoot at it. We wouldn't just let it hit like, oh, well, our policy is to let the Russian ones go by. I mean, we would certainly try. It's just that the Russians have so many and they're more sophisticated. It's not designed to do that. It's just designed to, to go after the North Korean threat. We also have sea-based capabilities as part of the architecture. I'm doing air quotes here for the listeners. Um, you know, we have like, you know, ships that have that have anti-ballistic uh, missiles on them that kind of that can intercept the medium range kind of missiles. And then we and we and we deployed those around Hawaii when North Korea starts misbehaving and we think that they might fire one towards Guam or fire one towards Hawaii and Secretary Mattis famously said we're going to try to we're going to shoot it down but you have to get it in the right place at the right time cuz it's not space based to get it in the envelope to be able to intercept it. And we have cooperative programs with the Japanese and this kind of stuff too. And then sorry, I know this is a lot of tech stuff but then we have the the THAAD-based system, which is a ground-based system to intercept missiles in their terminal phase of flight. That's a really bad day if you're going to intercept a missile in their terminal phase of flight. That means it's coming down on it uh, close to its target. Um, I've seen that happen. It was really, really cool. We, there is a, we, te- we were testing one in Hawaii, and so I was there during one of the tests where we could actually see it. And it was amazing. I mean, you know, you, we launch a scud and we hit it ourselves and it's incredible and everyone is just ecstatic. It's really fun. But so that's what we have today. And then we have radars all over the place that cue the systems, et cetera. We've got some space-based radar and that kind of thing or sensors. What I've been arguing for is we got to develop, we got to evolve. And so now you got to get the next layer and that's a space-based layer. You've referenced a couple of times already China and Russia. And of course, earlier I alluded to this when I said the challenges of nuclear weapons deterrence are back, but perhaps even more complex than they were, because now we have almost a uh, tripartite global security dimension to nuclear deterrence. Whereas in the Cold War, it was obviously a Soviet-American kind of bipolar, not triad. What are the new dimensions, just kind of tabula rasa, how would Rebecca Heinrichs begin to even talk about this problem of having now three major nuclear powers and the deterrence obligations for the U.S.? So first of all, again, this is why I can't get away from the political philosophy. You know, I think you ha- we have to have it clear in our minds, first and foremost, that the United States is still worth defending. Our interests are free and open access to international waters. It is still... Uh, the democratic alliance architectures that the United States has worked very hard over many years to develop. And so I, I start with that because if we don't have that clear in our minds, then what there's a tendency to, to see the threat landscape as getting so hard and so complicated that the easier thing is to just start 
sort of like erasing some of our interests. Okay, well, maybe Taiwan's not really a strategic interest, or maybe Ukraine is just sort of a, a Reddit country that's not real, and we can let the Russians take it. You know, you hear these people, people making those arguments because you can see how hard the problem becomes when you have countries, Russia and China, who are very aggressive, revanchist countries becoming more powerful and are really leaning harder on their nuclear weapons um, to coerce the United States and our allies to back down um, so that they can take take property and land and territory in countries that are not theirs. And so you start from there. So that's where you really see the problem gets really hard. It's not just Russia anymore. Although Russia is a top tier strategic adversary of the United States, it's now China too, which is much wealthier and is in the middle of a strategic breakout of their nuclear weapons program. So they are building a lot of nuclear weapons. This is something that drives me nuts reading the reading the press actually. Is every few months you'll see a piece in the New York Times or some top tier American publication, the Journal, the Washington Post, you name it. And it will have uh, a story on some extraordinary Chinese breakthrough or ratcheting up of the nuclear weapons program. And some official is invariably quoted, oftentimes anonymous, saying, it's shocking. We're surprised. We're stunned. When are we going to stop being shocked, surprised, and stunned at the Chinese buildup? So this gets back to— But again, I interrupted you. No, you don't need to digress right. it, on it, that. It, 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 and, and, people, and I really do think these people really are shocked. It's sort of like—but it gets back to like, how are you—you you know, there's this idea that, that the United States, after the Cold War, that we could— we could just trade with countries and everybody would be happy with with the world order that the United States has created with our allies. And and really, it it is a fact that our adversaries got, China in particular, got very, very wealthy, but they never stopped being communists. And so they never got rid of their ideology. They were never happy with the United States being top dog and deciding how the WHO is going to work, how the UN Security Council is going to operate, what are the rules of the road for how we're going to behave in international waters, what are international waters, all those kinds of things. The Chinese were never okay with it, but they were quiet about it because there was nothing they could do about it. We could go through the Taiwan Strait and they could throw a fit, but they couldn't even see it. They didn't even have the capability to see it, let alone hit it. And you really, I think, had some lazy analysts that thought, well, good, it's because everybody's trading and what people really want are jobs and money. Well, no, it turns out people are communists. Some people, um, you know, are, 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 you know, Russian nationalists and some people really do like Putin. I was just talking to somebody like, how, explain to me how the Russian people still like Putin. I'm like, well, they're Russians and they like Putin, and, you know, for us, for a lot of reasons. And it's hard for a lot of Americans to, to wrap our minds around around that but it but it's true. So China China is has been observing the United States how we fight wars and how we think, which is why if you pay attention, you know, I love watching Chinese propaganda because it's an insight into how they think we think. And a lot of times they're right, sometimes they're hilariously wrong, but they're watching and observing and then that's how they're thinking about how they're going to coerce the United States. Anyway, so China is leaning heavily on their nuclear weapons development, their programs. They're watching and observing how the United States responds to Putin's nuclear coercion and China and Russia are allies. Uh, they are allies in, I think, in every sense of the word, with the exception of how the West thinks about it, which is sort of like, you know, truly committed as a matter of principle and legal policy, et cetera, et cetera. It's not, but they they are collaborating. They see themselves. And if you read Xi Jinping's um, speeches about uh, Marx, Matt Pottinger is great at keeping tabs on all this stuff. Um, and I read everything that, that Matt writes and whenever he testifies before Congress, because he's always bringing out more, more information about what Xi has been talking about internally, domestically. Um, 
Um, but he's a Marxist. And um, just like how Putin laments the the fall of the Soviet Union, I mean, Xi Jinping talks about how that was a disaster as well. So the problem is hard in that it's going to require the United States to exercise muscles we haven't in a while, the moral clarity, the strategic clarity, and we're going to need a lot more nuclear weapons. We're going to need a lot more nuclear weapons because we're, we're going to have a lot more targets, both in Russia and in China. And we're going to have to figure out how to deter one adversary. And then if that adversary becomes a no-kidding enemy where we're actually at war with them, how do we make sure that this other country that has a massive number of nuclear weapons does not get involved? And so then you have your intra-war deterrent problem. And that's something that the United States just simply has to pay for and, and work on and really earn earn the consensus of the American people that this is a direction we have to go. Well, and one thing I worry about with the Russians is that you know, if we think of Russian capabilities very crudely in three categories, there's the low-end disinformation operations, hybrid warfare that is attached to Vladimir Gerasimov, the chief of staff of the Russian Armed Forces, the Gerasimov Doctrine, as it's come to be known. Then there's the middle layer of conventional forces, which we've seen in Ukraine, and then there's the high-end, both tactical and strategic nuclear forces. If the mid-layer is being degraded by the Ukrainians, that leaves the Russians with either low-end operational or high-end capabilities. And so I expect your industry will be a boom industry in the years to come when it comes to analyzing uh, the Russians, because as they refit their conventional forces, they're going to have to lead more heavily on their nuclear, both saber-rattling offensively, which we've seen via Belarus of, of late, and as a, as, a, as a deterrent writ large. But uh, let me take you somewhere else, which is when oftentimes we talk about the capabilities of these adversaries. You're painting a picture of a very dark and dangerous and worrying world. The uh, next step for many is to say, well, let's control this. Uh, which is to say through arms control negotiations. I'm a big believer in the old saw that arms control is most available to you when you need it least, but least available to you when you need it most, which is to say we can easily do arms control with, say, the United Kingdom, but we don't really need an arms control regime with the, with, the, with the Brits. It's very difficult to do with the Chinese, and that's probably where we need it most, or with the Russians. But uh, tell me why or why not arms control negotiations or arms control agreements are uh, the path out of the conundrum we find ourselves in with the spiraling world of nuclear weapons. Yeah, so I, um, I'm i one of those uh, people, I'm not, I am not ideologically opposed to arms control. Uh, sometimes people who are very, very eager to put a lot of our eggs in the arms control basket sort of misunderstand people like me who really am more focused on the hard power aspect of things they sort of misunderstand me as being against arms control. I'm not against arms control. I'm against arms control as a as a tool for appeasing our adversary or as a as a as an attempt to appease our adversary. And this is where I think the Trump administration got this very, very right, um, which is, uh, the Trump administration pulled out of the INF treaty with the Russians because the Russians were cheating. And so, you know, when you have when you have an adversary who you're in a treaty with, an arms control treaty with, and they are cheating, and you're still complying with it, and it would be good if you weren't complying with it, you get to the point where like this thing is just, you know, that the Russians are just they're just using this to handcuff us. And so we got to get out of it. And that's really what happened during the Trump administration pulled out of the INF treaty, pulled out of the Open Skies Treaty. Um, Russians were What's the Open Skies Treaty? So this this was a treaty that we had where we were basically cooperating with the Russians. We would allow um, Russians and Americans and allies could hop on these Russian planes too, or these these planes. And you basically do you you do flyovers of different different parts 
types of what we would want to see that our adversaries have so that there is some transparency. You have transparency, predictability. The Russians can fly over the United States, et cetera. But what the Russians were, the Russians started doing is they started flying around like where President Trump was traveling. That's generally, that's bad. That's like, you know, because it started, um, you know, we, we were, and this is all sort of public, you know, reporting that came out, you know, you... When, when you start doing that, that's not that's not innocuous. They're looking for what kinds of things do the rest of our country do to prepare for our our strategic deterrence when the when the commander in chief travels. So they were doing things that are generally um, poor form, and then they were preventing the United States from flying over certain areas that we would want to see around Russia um, when we were really worried that they were sort of uh, making efforts around Belarus and and Ukraine, et cetera. And so they were not allowing the United States into certain areas and then and they were really snooping around in ways that made us very uncomfortable here in the U.S. Anyway, pulled out of that and then really tried to, the Trump administration tried to negotiate, renegotiate the New START Treaty to try to rope in Chinese um, weapons as well, thinking that the New START Treaty was is just going to hamstring the United States when we potentially need to be doing things to adapt so that we're deterring China too. And if the Russians simply won't allow their tactical or their theater range nuclear weapons to be included in this arms, this last really standing arms control treaty with the United States, then maybe we don't need it. The Biden administration came in then and and went ahead and, and reauthorized that, um, the New START Treaty. But now the Russians are straight up saying that they're not going to comply with the New START Treaty anymore. They're not going to do verification with it. So I think that the kinds of arms control mechanisms that we're going to have over this next decade, probably a couple of decades, are going to be informal treaties or in they're going to be non-treaties, informal agreements, and just trying to get at things for greater transparency and predictability with the Russians and the Chinese, if we can even get those. So you think New START will move from suspension to outright Nick's dead letter I do. gone. Okay. I do. I do. I do believe, I mean, the, it's. I think it's already just in its last dying breath. The United States is just um, complying with it because we haven't made the decision of as a nation to move beyond New START treaty limits. I think once those requirements are set and we think that we need to do that, we're going to do that, especially because the Russians are no longer complying with it for all the purposes anyway. And New START covers delivery vehicles and launch systems. Of deployed. Uh, right. so, so these are the strategic deployed um, delivery systems, nuclear weapons. So you think about bombers and, and that kind of thing. So I think you you asked about, you know, just arms control generally. I actually was invited during the Trump administration to be just like a private citizen speaker on a side event at a, a UN summit in, in New York where I got to talk about this issue. And so I just flat out said that the reason that the Chinese will not talk about their nuclear weapons is because they have, a, they have an advantage regionally. And so in order for us to get the Chinese to start talking to us, we're going to have to start doing things that they don't like, which is deploying a lot more, um, intermediate range uh, missiles, ground-based systems in the region. And the Chinese official interestingly stood up um, and remarked that he thought that I was a warmonger and propaganda for the government, et cetera. And then the Russian official delegate stood up and said that he just wanted to publicly associate himself with the remarks of the Chinese delegate. So very interesting. But I but I do, so I had my own little wolf warrior kind of experience there. And I reminded him that in my country, I can say whatever I want. It's not like his country where I would be whisked away and, you know, stuck in a camp somewhere. But, you know, you, you, in arms control, to your point, it's, it is only going to work once you make the adversary believe it's his best option. And we are not there yet. So it's, we're going to go through an era of hard power, I think, before we can actually get to arms control. 
So I, you can tell I'm not a newsman because I've left the most newsworthy question for the very end, um, which is that you are on the Strategic Posture Commission created by the NDAA. And I'd note that our Hudson colleague, Marshall Billingsley, has joined you on that commission. In fact, Hudson has has quite a repertoire on, on nuclear weapons. When you're talking about New START, I, I thought of Senator John Kyle, who was sort of the lead Republican on this issue in the Senate at the time. Of course, he's retired since then, but uh, his national security advisor was Tim Morrison, who's also a a Hudson colleague of ours. Tell us, what is the New Strategic Posture Commission? How's it going? Uh, will there be a report issued at any point? And um, is there general agreement on the commission, et cetera, about the contours of that report? Yeah, I, I would actually argue that Hudson Institute is the premier think tank for thinking about strategic deterrence. The NIPP is the other place where Keith Payne is there with uh, Dave Trachtenberg and Matt Koslow. But that's kind of, that's our brother sort of institute. They do fantastic work, very prolific. And, and I've published with them, had the great privilege publishing with them um, many times, but but really, and, and then it's Hudson. Um, the, you said you read everything by Matt Pottinger. I do as well. I also read everything Keith Payne's ever put out because so he's he is a, my a doctoral, he is my advisor. So I am, I've spent, I have the, had the great privilege of spending a lot of time having lots of things painfully edited by Keith Payne lately. <laughs> so you can imagine incredibly serious, serious uh, thinker. And, and you know, these kind of people when you're around them, the way they the way they think and analyze, it's it's so precise and so serious and so rigorous and really uh, the country really, he's also thought a lot about just war doctrine and nuclear deterrence as well. He's also a fellow Baptist with me as well. So very interesting kind of intellectual kind of uh, school of thought there. Uh, and Senator Kyle is the ranking Republican on the commission as well. So, and he's been at Hudson, you know, many times. And so we've got Senator Kyle, Tim Morrison, a uh, fellow here at, at, think, at, um, at Hudson, and then Marshall and I on the commission. We are in the last, uh, I got to be careful here because the the report is not published. But we are. Don't I'm, be careful. Just give us all the news <laughs> here, Rebecca. I am. I am trying to pump numbers on this podcast. I'm very optimistic that we are going to have a very good document for the American people. The last time, and when you've got. You've got half Democrats. I'm one of the Republican-appointed commissioners. That's just part of the deal. But when you get people who you got Rose Gottmeiler was is a is a fantastically um, well-regarded diplomat for the United States Democrat. Um, she negotiated the New Start Treaty uh, during the Obama administration. She's on the commission. Um, Bob Shear. Uh, very well-regarded um, policy guy for the Democrats. Uh, Madeline Creeden is our chair. Um, Matt Kranig is uh, with Georgetown, the Atlantic Council. So anyway, so there's a, he's on the right. He's a, one of the Republican commissioners. So we've got a great uh, crew, very diverse thinking on how to handle some of these problems. But when you get people like us, all very patriotic, serious Americans in a room and in a skiff over a year, just looking at how serious the problems are and then, you know, what do we got to do about it? I've been very impressed. I'll put it that I've been very impressed at our ability to work through disagreements, but then also the seriousness of which everyone's determined to come up with solutions. And so um, we do believe that we are moving towards a final consensus document. Um, so it will be a document where we can all put our names and say, this is where we landed. This is where, you know, the things that are in it, we couldn't necessarily agree in that particular way, but this is where we landed. And then that will be published. Uh, we've already begun to brief the defense committees 
um, because as they're preparing their bills, but then it will be, we'll make sure that our allies, we really considered the views of our allies. We had briefings and meetings with them to understand how they're thinking. And then we hope to to produce a report um, in the coming weeks. I don't know exactly those, the specific date. Um, it's got to go through all of the kind of security stuff that it needs to, but I am confident it will be good. I hope it'll be energizing to policymakers to say, we've got a really, really serious problem on our hands. This country is still worth protecting despite all of our um, challenges here domestically, and we got to hold the line and to protect the U.S.-led order that are, we have fought so hard, and really the people who have come before us have fought so hard to protect and build. Great. We'll have to have you back to talk about the report when it's published. But uh, as a final question or final just comment, um, a lot of the thinking that you've articulated today um, can be found or wrapped up in what I think is the mainstay of your Hudson work, which is the Keystone Defense Initiative. Uh, can you describe the initiative? And um, I know uh, it puts out a, a regular newsletter, really kind of summarizing your work and thinking and all that's going around on a Hudson that's even adjacent or touching um, this topic, how how uh, listeners might be able to sign up for that. Yeah, you can go online and you can find Keystone Defense Initiative, Rebecca Heinrichs, but we've got to sign up. It's free. You can sign up and subscribe. What I've, what I've tried to do for the Keystone Defense Initiative, obviously I believe that our strategic deterrent is the keystone of our defense, and that's why it's called the Keystone Defense Initiative. Um, but what I've tried to do is each month develop a theme to help readers, policymakers, strategists think about, for instance, how do well, how do we think about NATO now and what are, you know, the Baltic nations and Poland and where they're most at risk? Or how do we think about coercion or this idea of escalation? There's a theme, um, there's a short write-up, and then there is news and um, clips from testimony from across the think tank community and defense community to try to help us focus our minds on those particular themes in a way that I think is fruitful. Um, and then I capture the news of the day uh, also, I've got help here. Uh, my my research associate, who Peter and I share, Kennedy, um, is great at helping me do this. But um, it, it's a way to so that it's not sort of just scattered. It's not like clips where you're just sort of like, this is all that's happening today, but it really is focused around a theme so that we can try to sort of break groupthink, but that also sort of uh, prompt other other think tank analysts from across the community to to produce other kinds of thinking to help um, get get our policy uh, right, consensus uh, maintained, and um, to get the Republicans and Democrats to agree that these things are worthy of their attention and work. Great, positive note to end on. Rebecca Heinrichs, thanks for joining us on Counterbalance. No, it's fun. Thanks for listening to this edition of Counterbalance. We're back in action. Please like and subscribe if you enjoyed today's conversation. And we will see you soon at a podcast near you. Bye-bye. Thank you. <laughs>